to have those two pieces. You have an inner wisdom. And the only way we move is forward. Failure is not an option. You might fail on a task, but you can't. Until we die, we are always learning, healing, and growing. The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. The topic of psychedelics and holistic treatment plans has grown considerably over the past decade, especially for people in depression or burnout or who just struggle in the chronic stress of everyday life. And while psychedelics isn't literally for everyone, they could be useful for anyone for various treatments for people who may not have had any idea that they were even out there. So when we met Matt Zeman and learned more about his book and what he's doing, we decided he'd be a great guest to answer some of our questions about the topic and to destigmatize the subject. Matt is a serious and earnest practitioner with degrees in psychology, neuroscience, and mental health. I hope you'll find something new in our discussion today. Matt Zeman, welcome to The Big Self Show. Chad, it is great to be here. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. It's a delight to have you on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And as we've been doing for our season five with our guests is to ask, what does living in your big self mean to you when you first or you can approach it of uh, with a, um, a, an approach of like when you hear the term big self what what comes to mind oh I love that question it I think I spent so much of my life focused on building businesses and earning income and not on building relationships not on having a, a deep emotional experience with the world, not on feeling interconnected, but rather feeling independent. So when I think when someone says, what does it mean to live in your big self? It's, it's reclaiming those things. It's, it's recognizing I'm just part of this, uh, this community and, um, and having alignment with purpose, emotion, interconnectedness of things. And, uh, and that what I'm doing to generate resources is in alignment with my purpose. Well, that's beautiful. And one of the things that you said in there um, caught my attention when you said living more independent and less intra-connected, I believe. But the independent part is... Actually, the other way around. Living more interconnectedly and less independent. Right. But I was... So, but the instead of living more independently, right? Yes. 
Right. Yeah. So, um, and, and that caught my attention because I do think that a lot of people who come to coaching, uh, or who just, they want to like, they want to, they want to put down the, the burden and the stress that they are carrying. And there is in our culture, we are so the individualism has led us to thinking we're all rocks and islands and, and it's, you know, just not the case. And there is this just like yielding uh, that is necessary. So I just uh, really thought that that part of what you were saying was, was interesting as well. Yeah, Chad, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan of what you do and um, I've had coaches for 12 years um, and it's, it's made a huge difference in, in, in my life and, and having someone to hold me accountable, having someone that has, does not have a financial interest in what I'm doing and is just here to help support my, my path has been, has been tremendous. Um, going back to the culture items. I mean, I think we are all raised in a culture of scarcity. There's not enough for everyone. You've got to get what's, what's out there. You've got mm-hmm. to make it's yours. We, we, even in school, it's, it's not enough to do a, a 4.0 anymore. You've got to be better in class ranking than your, than your peers. So that's not about helping your, your peers. You've got to do better than them to get into the college to then get the job and on and on. Um, so it's ingrained deeply in us. We take that into the workforce mm-hmm. um, and unlearning those things and realizing, no, 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 we're in an abundant time. There is enough for everybody. There's enough for us. Failure is not an option. Um, it's, it, for me, it's been a, 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 just a better, um, better way to live, uh, less, less burnout, less stress, less, um, more, more, uh, more happiness. Yeah. Unlearning the things that we go to learn. <laughs> Correct. Know. Yes. It's an unlearning oh, process. Um, well, you know, I mean, so this overall, this, this topic and you're a big advocate for, for psychedelics. Uh, and what's interesting is you, uh, you know, part of your story that you share is that you had, you didn't grow up, um, using them recreationally, um, and, and we're wary of them. I mean, you can, it's your story to, to tell, but I find it, I find it interesting how you then in adulthood, um, came, came into them. I mean, I will say that I, I did use them recreationally, um, in, in high school, <laughs> I mean, uh, and had some experiences that were, were amazing. They were, it was transcendent, but in your 16 to, to 19 year old self, you don't always know what to do with that. Uh, so at, to some extent we are, uh, in this conversation, I guess I'm framing it out a little bit is we're going to be talking about the, uh, responsible and, uh, and therapeutic use of psychedelics. I mean, I don't know if I'm starting too broad here, but, and I know that you lay them out really quite systematically and clearly both in your book and, and on your website in video after short video after short video. Um, And I checked those out and they're helpful, but I guess, could you kind of um, break down for us a little bit, you know, um, how are psychedelics like, what do they, they have in common in this wide variety of different kind of sources and applications so how are they the same? Uh, how are they different? Um, you know, and 
I guess, but like without even, we will save a ketamine question. Um, but like, what what's their yeah? What's their overall relationship in spite of the the variety of options that there are with psychedelics? Okay, I love that. Love that question. Let me see if I can break that down. So let's all psychedelics across the across the board um, essentially do a few things, and and there there are nuance of difference, but but in brushstrokes, this is what mm-hmm. they do. They're gonna, they're gonna quiet that inner narrator inside your head, that voice that's constantly telling you that you're not good enough, that you're not working hard enough, that you're going to fail, that that runs in the background. So when that quiets down for many people, it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much noise my inner narrator told me. So that, that, that by itself is powerful. The second mm-hmm. thing it does is it allows neurons to fire together that don't normally fire together, but that did at one point in your, in your development. So the, mm. the analogy I always give is imagine that you are skiing down a, a ski hill. And as we get older, we keep skiing in the same tracks over and over and over to the point where you can't get off the track. It's, it's a repetitive thinking behavior. When we take a psychedelic, especially as we come into middle age, it throws a, a fresh coat of powder on that, that mountain. And now we can ski all over the hill again. And for so maybe on a on a mushroom journey that might be a six hour experience, but it reminds us of how that we don't always have to think the way we're thinking, and that there are other ways to think through problems, relationships, traumas, the future, those types of things. So that's the second thing it does. The third thing a psychedelic often does is it allows us to connect to a higher power, whatever that is, and in that moment. We feel connected. So our culture of loneliness, the feeling of I, 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 I need to do something to get love. I need to do something to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we do feel connected to something else. And for many people, that is also a huge relief. And you put all of that together and it's this, this what I call the reclaiming of your true self. It's this, you are loved. You are enough. You don't have to do anything to have those two pieces. You have an inner wisdom. And the only way we move is forward. Failure is not an option. You might fail on a task, but you can't. Until we die, we are always learning, healing, and growing. That's it. So you now take those things together, you put in, and you, uh, you come into whatever the psychedelic experience is for whatever reason you came into it. And now you have an opportunity to have really lasting behavioral change, uh, mindset change, and take all that moving forward. Okay. Wow. I mean, I love the learning, healing and growing our entire life that, you know, it does parallel and some of the, you're talking about some of the ways the brain works. And fortunately too, maybe some of this that goes hand in hand is for the past couple of decades, we've been able to, you know, be, with neuroscience, uh, really be able to sort of empirically go in to the brain and observe what is going on. And so it's helpful. It's helpful to know that I just talked to a neuroscientist uh, for the Big Self Show um, recently, and she's very much an advocate for our brains are always they're they're always able to be growing. You you can constantly be learning, and it really is a myth that it's all solidified and over after a couple of periods of you know being very young. 
So that's uh, that's interesting, Matt, and helpful. Uh, I mean, so I think a lot of people who uh, are curious about the subject would be kind of like they they probably we can keep this up at the top of the the our thinking is like well what how lasting is the actual experience of it and what's what's the other work that needs to be done but we'll save that mm-hmm. let's think of. Um, psychedelics and, you know, and maybe like how a lot of people use antidepressants and they can be controversial in their own right because they might have some limited use, uh, maybe not all, maybe over-prescribed limited applications. So can psychedelics be used instead of antidepressants? And, you know, could you tell us a little bit like what are the differences, do you think? Yeah, so antidepressants, if they work for you and you're listening to this, that's fantastic. If they don't work for you, that's not a you problem. That's a medicine problem. They only work on roughly 40% of the population. Hmm. What, um, what I don't think people are, are told when, when they're given the list of side effects that might happen with an antidepressant is how probable those side effects. So as an example, with many antidepressants, it's like 73% of the people will have some type of sexual dysfunction. 73%. That's a huge number. That's a high price tag for the antidepressant weight gain, lethargy, suicidal ideation, the, 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 the side effects are tremendous. Mm. And they were never meant to be long-term solutions for years, for decades. That's not what they were designed for. But in our, in our healthcare system, many of our people are prescribed an antidepressant and then renewed and renewed and renewed in these 10-minute wellness visits. And it becomes a, a lifelong addiction. And truly addiction is the right word. You, getting off of an antidepressant is, is challenging. It's possible but it's challenging. With, the, with psychedelics, whether it's ketamine, our only legal option in all 50 states, or whether it's psilocybin or LSD or um, ayahuasca, many people do this once in their entire lives. Maybe they do it once a year, maybe they do it once a quarter. Even, even, anyway, it's never once a day. Um, and the side effect profile is very, very low. Um, most side effects will go away once the medicine leaves. Um, the, the, the long-term risks are again, very, very low. Are there risks with psychedelics? Absolutely. But the, um, Hmm. but as a whole, it's much less than many of the other drugs that are out there. Um, so then when people talk about, I want, I, I am experiencing depression, I'm experiencing anxiety, and I want to take something for this. Are psychedelics an option? Yes, that's what, that's how ketamine is being prescribed. That's why people in many cases are going to psychedelics. I'm going to um, introduce a concept here. We can stay on this for as long as you wish. But one thing that I believe is different is I don't believe that psychedelics are biochemical reaction only. So I don't believe that there's any magic pill ever, not in the current pharmacological solutions and not with any psychedelics that are going to cure you, period. Right. right. It's not Good. just a yeah. biochemical reaction. It's a biochemical, psychosocial, spiritual process. And the psychedelic is the catalyst that then leads to behavioral and mental change moving forward. So does it have a biochemical component? Absolutely. But then it allows you, hopefully, in a a uh, well-supported experience to go into a community, to move forward with a take advantage of the plasticity that also occurs in your brain following a psychedelic and really make change based on whatever is important to you to change in your life. Very helpful. Wow. Um, Well, okay. So ketamine though, like that is the one perhaps that 
has some of the most like of all of the psychedelics that we're we're discussing that you just mentioned it from what i can tell from the little bit of research that i've done it seems like ketamine might have the the most addictive components of these the the others seem to have very very low if any and, and like it has some other it has the most side effects or dangers in these directions and yet is uh, has become much more accessible, perhaps ironically. But could you could you tell us a little bit about um, ketamine, yeah. how it's being used, and some of those differences? Ketamine's super stable medicine. It's been around for a long time. It's been used as an anesthetic first, and uh, and then a, a disassociative anesthetic. And when it's used in sub anesthetic doses, it turns out it has really tremendous uh, ability to reduce depression, lift anxiety, stop people from being suicidal. It's it's a pretty a powerful, potent medicine. In the recreational scene with ketamine, it has shown to be addictive and bladder issues um, have, have occurred with, with long-term and heavy use. Mm. Medically, if people stick with a provider, they use the, the, the dosages prescribed in the um, frequency that's prescribed. We haven't seen that as much, but that doesn't mean there's not a risk. Um, animal studies have shown that it's certainly possible to, um, to become addicted to, to ketamine. So it is something for people to be care- careful of. Um, and then again, dosage matters. So when you, if, you, if you are doing this recreationally, um, yeah, that's, that can be dangerous. Um, ketamine is also sold sometimes as ketamine in the, in the black market and it's laced with other items. So it can be very dangerous to buy in a non, uh, non-medical environment. Yeah, so, so again, something else for people to be care- careful of. Mm-hmm. There are many... Uh- yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's like, but there are now uh, clinics. There's uh, an FDA-approved, um, I guess, 2020 law mm-hmm. that that allowed uh, allowed video tele teleconferencing to. You don't have to go into the clinic to be able to get a prescription for it. Is that is that correct? Yep. So let's talk about that. There, you can go into a clinic and you can do it via telehealth. If you go into a clinic, you're looking about three to six thousand dollars for your six sessions. If you do it via telehealth probably closer to $1,200 for your six sessions. At this point, ketamine is not covered by insurance. There is a version called Spravato, an S-ketamine, that is covered by insurance, but a lot of hoops to jump through to get there and that you have to take in, in clinic. When people go in to take ketamine, um, it's either done intravenously, intramuscularly, or uh, sublingually, three different options, or nasally. There are other ways you can do it, but those are the kind of the four main ways. And then what I, what I encourage people with, uh, with ketamine to just be aware of is that not all providers are the same. Some will literally have you come in, take your vitals, give you an IV, you take your journey, and then they send you on your way home. While others, they do preparation. They have you set your intention. You have more of a, a ceremonial approach. You have uh, integration afterwards. What came up for you? How did that feel? You have music during the experience. Um, so just ask questions. How is this going to be delivered? What are you going to give me in advance to prepare? What are you going to give me afterwards to integrate? If you're not going to give me anything, then you need to go find your own resources. It's not that one is bad and one is good. It's just buyer beware when it comes to ketamine. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. Well, you talk about the the doses uh, and 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 applications, and I, I think that this go. You hear about micro dosing when it comes to I've heard with, with psilocybin, um, and I guess this, and to some extent, 
is in a way be that's the application with ketamine. Could you tell us about micro dosing, um, how people do it, why it's why it's done, um, maybe its effect, efficacy, because it does sound like micro dosing would be a little bit different than what you've described so far with how people might use it on these very um, special occasions. Mm-hmm. Micro dosing sounds like it would be a more regular thing. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so when it comes to ketamine, when I, when I say it's a sub anesthetic dose, um, mm-hmm. it's not a full dose. It doesn't put you under, but it's a full, you're doing a 40 minute to an hour experience. It's a deep dive. You, 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 you can drop down their visuals. There's all sorts of things. So that's, that's closer to a macro dose when we, with, uh, uh, a, a traditional uh, psychedelic. When we talk about microdosing, we're talking about one tenth to one twentieth of a regular dose. And when people typically talk about microdosing, they're talking about either with mushrooms or with LSD. Again, are there other things you can do? Sure, but those are the okay. two. Um, the the old world was a sub uh, perceptual. So if you're microdosing properly, you really don't even feel it in a way that you know it. But in theory, it's helping you. The blues are bluer, the grays are gray, are less gray, The uh, you feel more connected, you feel more loved, you feel more creative. Those are kind of the main reasons people microdose. The research on microdosing is split. There is some research that says, yeah, this, this absolutely works and does those things that I just said. There's other research that says, no, it's more of a placebo. So we're going to see more research coming out. Um, my personal take is it, it is more on the, it, I believe it works, but uh, let's see what the research says in, in here the years to come. And then um, again, when people are microdosing, they are, there's two main protocols that people follow. They're either following Dr. James Fadiman's protocol, which is you, you microdose on day one, it's still in your system on day two, you let it out on day three, you repeat on day four, and you do that for four weeks, you take a two-week break. Paul Stamets, the famous mycologist, says, ah, it's too complicated. Take it for four days in a row, take three days off, do that for four weeks, and take a break. And then he adds one more layer. He says, add a little bit of niacin and add a little bit of lion's mane. And now you're not only doing the creativity, the connectedness, but you're helping with memory, you're helping with dexterity, and you have some other benefits. So those are two different protocols. I have a free guide to microdosing on my website. And then also, um, I always recommend like Third Wave has has a great guide to microdosing. Um, There's some really nice ones that are out there. Sounds it sounds super interesting. Uh, I I could imagine that it might be hard for some people to really follow the protocols, and that it, it could at least be psychologically, it could create dependency psychologically if you were feeling like, wow, this is fun, even you know, even in the low dosage, or boy, this is what makes me feel creative, and then to like. Oh, but today I'm I'm not going to. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's kind of the power. And in theory, when you're taking it on this type of protocol, that it actually makes it level out. You don't really feel the dip in between, even with the two week break. Um, mm. Again, it's such a small amount that you can drive, you can have meetings, you can raise your kids, you do all those different things because it's it's a very 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 small amount. The idea is um, that it does all of these things kind of behind the scenes. And you just, at the end of the day, it's like, wow, today was a, a better day, or I was less reactive, or I was more connected, or I was more um, in touch. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it, you don't feel the dip, like if you miss a day or two of your antidepressant, and you really feel that dip, this doesn't feel like that, typically. 
Hmm. Okay. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And speaking of like dependencies and substance misuse or abuse, like apparently we can use psychedelics to uh, to overcome substance use, right? Uh, which I think is um, some fascinating territory because a lot of times in in coaching or even you know speaking with um, neuroscientists and and others. They say that before we're able to like truly always move forward in in our lives and do this transformation, often you just got to do, you got to go back. You got to unwork, unlearn some patterns. And in particular, when one is addicted, whether it's to a chemical or a pattern of behavior of one kind or another, there is this, it's it's more challenging to do the unlearning. So I guess, could you tell us about how psychedelics can be used in an application of overcoming substance use disorders? Absolutely. And first, I do want to recognize what you just said there, because I think it's hugely important. And, and I really appreciate you saying there are some people who struggle with substances. And as a culture, we we are very quick to judge those who have a drug dependency and alcohol dependency um, but there's many of us who have behavioral challenges and we're less likely. So for instance, I was a, a workaholic, but because mm-hmm. I got stuff done, because I generated money, people weren't as quick to be like, oh, well, but, but he did abandon his family to go start this other business or to go travel all the time. There, we are, we are, there are many of us who have, um, yeah, so it's work, it, it can be eating, it can be sex, it can be food, it can be all sorts of behavioral ways that we are, we are um, expressing or or trying to relieve our trauma, our insecurities, and not not just substance. But sticking with psychedelics for substance use specifically, it does feel kind of like kind of weird. Like, oh, I'm going to use a substance to get off of a substance. Um, I'll go back historically and talk about Bill W., the founder of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He created this 12-step program, the first step being giving yourself to a higher power. And he argued vehemently that LSD should be part of the protocol for Alcoholics Anonymous. And his premise was step number one is this higher power component. And for quote drunks using his language, um, that's a very hard step for, for them to take, for many of them to take. LSD is a forced spiritual experience. Hmm. Um, and by doing that and seeing and feeling a higher power, they could then take that step easier and then cons- continue down the 12 step program, which is effectively a spiritual path wrapped around a, uh, a dependency challenge. Um, so I think when people take large doses of psilocybin to stop smoking to st- uh, or ketamine for alcohol or Ibogaine for heroin, part of this experience is biochemical and part of it is this inner journey and this interconnectedness that you feel um, and you know in a way that is different than someone telling you something in talk therapy or you're reading in a book. And the, and the results have just been tremendous. I mean, Johns Hopkins work on smoking right now, I think it's twice as good as the, as the, as the best option on the market today in terms of effectiveness. Um, that's, that's pretty astounding. And for alcohol, I mean, so many people that, that I know in the research, just it's, if you, if you, I mean, for, I'll use just me as an example. I did not intend to stop drinking, but after my first large dose mushroom experience, I haven't had to drink in, in years and years and years. Um, and that wasn't my intention. I can only imagine if I went in saying, mm, I want to drink less or I want to stop drinking, how that could, how that can affect people. 
Wow, that that's exciting to think about. And when you so when you mentioned the forced spiritual experience, it's, it's interesting uh, because I I can share that like yeah I remember like my seventeen year old self that um, you know would 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 uh, <laughs> I get you know like there was a lot of LSD available uh, in Richmond Virginia it was it was like the most accessible and, and inexpensive thing to be able to. Um, to get uh, occasionally shrooms, but I would go like on a Saturday with a buddy out to uh, Skyline Drive in in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we would be ha- we would be tripping. And I remember these moments of feeling like they, they are what we would describe now as um, it, it's it was a spiritual experience uh what feeling the the being present in the given moment just the unfolding of of the presence of being just observing deeply what is happening moment by moment that's a spiritual principle uh another is the the unity um the the connectedness to all things uh, I would observe like the patterns in the the rock formations and how they seemed to mirror up in the sky the way the clouds would uh, would would pattern. And as a seventeen year old under this, but but because of the illicit nature of what I was doing, because knowing that I was breaking the law, uh, I remember feeling this also this guilt about it or this a little bit of a judgment of oh yeah you're just you're just thinking in the the hippie language you know the saying like oh i see the oneness in all things uh so it is these um all these years later these decades later it's refreshing to see that it's like being historically um there's an exegesis happening of we're examining how these things became illegal in the first place, what their richer and deeper applications can can be. So, um, yeah, just from anecdotal, for you know, uh, experience, I can, I can agree, I can agree, and I, you know, I, I think also I've I've heard an argument here and there over the years made of. I don't believe they would say I don't believe in chemically induced spiritual experiences, uh, but I completely disagree with that. Yes, of course we don't need to, ha- but for thousands of years, I would I would assume that the there there are vehicles that help to transport us to be able to be in touch with the numinous and the spiritual. That's super important for people to understand. I mean, people have been, um, humanity, humans have been working with entheogens, psychedelics for thousands of years. There's a cave painting in Africa and Algeria specifically of this mushroom shaman where he's got mushrooms coming all the way up his sides and he's holding some mushrooms. That's somewhere between four and 9,000 years old. There are mushrooms in every continent except Antarctica. Um, we think about psychedelics as we've all learned, or many of us have learned about Native Americans and their use of peyote or the Mayans and the Aztecs and their use of of psychedelics, but we don't learn about the shaman in Siberia in their use. We don't learn about the tribes in Africa in their use. We don't think about the witches being burned in Europe being burned for using psychedelics. We don't think mm. of the Greeks and the Eleusian mysteries for over 2,000 years 
they practice a psychedelic ritual with people like Plato and Socrates and um, Marcus Aurelius and the, many of the Stoic philosophers all participated in. So we there isn't this, this notion that the psychedelic lineage is for others isn't true. Most of us have a psychedelic lineage. Um, so then how do, it's only Western society where we've said, oh no, we're better than that. We don't need to use those rituals. And we've tried to make everything about science and pure science. And we've separated the role of priest and physician. And when it comes to something like a psychedelic, it gets really complicated. If we say, okay, no, this isn't, this should be in the hands of the clerics only, it would be fair to argue, oh, wait a minute, no, they don't have the, the knowledge to keep us safe, to reduce the risk. But if we give it to the hands of the physician where, or the psychiatrist, where they have great knowledge about the body and the brain, it's also fair to say, well, wait a minute, they don't have the knowledge and how to work in the spiritual realm. So how do we need a reconciliation between the spiritual and the, and the medical and where both sides can adopt best practices from the other and we can get more people who are trained and skilled to help take people through these deep, deep spiritual experiences where, as you said, it might be one moment in your life and decades later, it's still shaping the way you see things. And I, I mean, again, I, so you talked about your 17-year-old self. I have a 17-year-old now. <laughs> I would much rather them have that experience than the alcohol-fueled experience that, that I had at that age where there wasn't mm. deep learning. The, the deep learning was, well, oh, I probably made some mistakes that I don't want to do again. The interconnectedness of all things from a, from a psychedelic is, is kind of a beautiful thing that I definitely wish upon my children. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, so, okay. But also, you know, your the book, the title of your book is psychedelics for everyone, but almost in, I think your very first sentence you say, but it's not necessarily for everyone. So, um, well, so what hey, do you mean? Was yeah, that? Not, I don't mean everybody needs to take a psychedelic. Right. What I mean is whether it's for you, whether it's for someone you love or whether it's just, you understand how they might help the benefit society understanding psychedelics, realizing that everything we've learned from 1971 to today, the, the, the egg on the, the frying pan, that was propaganda. We lived in a prohibition. So, okay, that no bad anybody. We lived in a prohibition. Now we know what's the reality of these medicines. What is the risk of taking mushrooms versus alcohol, LSD versus tobacco? What is the risk? And then how can these medicines help us move forward, whether we approach these medicines from a medical model or a religious model or a decriminalization model. All three of these models can live in harmony together and different people can approach them based on who they are, what their background is, what they're trying to achieve and what they can afford. Yeah. Um, and so, and to, to frame my next question, I'm going to take a little excerpt from your book. Um, I don't know if it was a, an, and what you specifically wrote or not, I can't remember, because um, I know you have other contributors um, to your book. But let, there's this excerpt where you write, Brother David Stendhal Rast is a Benedictine monk with a PhD in experimental psychology who has studied with Zen masters and dedicated most of his life to interfaith dialogue. And he told the LA Times that his experience with psychedelics was like, quote, like 
climbing all day in the fog, and then suddenly briefly seeing the mountain peak for the first time. There are no shortcuts to the awakened attitude, and it takes daily work and effort, but the drug gives you a vision, a glimpse of what you are seeking. So I do think that that illustrates the idea of what you are saying, that whether it's for everyone exactly or not for whatever reason, that there is a, it's a tool. It's a tool that can help you uh, access things, feel things, what the feeling might be this um, like grace, like you're enough that you were saying at the beginning. And then the difficult work you have to, so um, I guess whether or not you use it, what, like what kinds of coaching or or therapy or work do you advocate for uh, around psychedelics? So when we talk about how do you optimize the psychedelic experience? So what does that mean? That means how do you reduce the risk so that you're most likely to have a, a trip that is meaningful? Mm-hmm. And then how do you um, optimize the benefits, the, the visions, the insights, the the behavioral and mental change? Um, it's kind of a three, there are three things to look at. There's source, set, and setting. So source is where did your medicine come from? If you're doing it in a medical model, it came from a pharmacy. So you know that's pure pharmaceutical grade, great. If you're doing it in the underground, if you're doing it in a ceremonial, knowing where they're getting their, uh, if, you're, if you're buying it from a dealer, there, there's different challenges with that. And we as a country don't have an above ground uh, ability to buy uh, drugs safely. So just again, be aware, trust your, either find somebody you trust deeply that you're buying from or test your drugs. So that's source. Set is your mindset. As you mm. prepare, um, you're setting your intention, you're, at, you're, you're, you're gathering your resources. What are your support things? Who's going to help you afterwards? Do you understand how long of an experience you're going in for? Do you understand what the medicine might feel like? Um, is your mindset there? Many people choose to take that step with either a coach or a therapist. And I, I don't have any bias. I don't think the research shows that doing it with somebody who's licensed is better than somebody who's unlicensed. It's where are you comfortable? Who do you want to work with to help set your intentions for this experience? Why are you doing this? Um, we then have the, the psychedelic experience itself. Maybe it's an hour for ketamine. Maybe it's six hours for mushrooms. But you have that experience. It's a moment in time. Then starts what we call integration. And this is, again, um, best practice, do it with a therapist or a coach, but it's weeks or months of unpacking what came up for you, how did that make you feel, how did that make you think, what is, how does that relate to how you're living your life today, and what did it make you think, think about how life is possible tomorrow? And then the, the advantage of having, again, a coach or a therapist is it's someone else who knows you who can say, okay, well, you told me you felt this, and you told me you saw this. Tell me more about that. Tell me more how to actualize that. Okay, you said you're going to do this. Let's let's write this down. Let's talk talk again in a week or in, in a few weeks or and see how we're doing on that progress. But it helps you remember that. Um, it just helps you remember and helps you optimize. Um, lots of different practices can be mixed in, like journaling and and those types of things as well. But a, a coach or a therapist is is so effective when it comes to preparing and integrating. The psychedelic experience. It's like, um, it strikes me that it's, it literally is like a peak experience and you can't live on the peak. You, 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 and so, and the real work has to be done, I guess, in the troughs and valleys. 
but those peak experiences uh, can help be a guide and serve as a reminder. Uh, and and also, like, uh, you know, I, a few weeks ago, I had a, a really, I'll just put it like, without unpacking this whole thing, a, a close call. I, I, um, I came close to drowning uh, on the, on a river in a paddleboarding incident. And I feel really lucky to have, uh, I feel really lucky. And like, there wasn't anything that I did in particular to escape the being, the, being stuck the way I was. And so it was a shock point in my, like in my life, there was a moment in which I do feel like I just as easily could have gone one direction, um, or the other. And, uh, I didn't feel, feel it emotionally. I felt I was like kind of upset and it was more of a psychic experience for a while. And then I was able to process it with the coach, uh, a week and a half later, and then I was able to feel it in my body and process it with my emotions. And I recognize that. So with, with shock point moments or moments that can be turning points for us, don't in and of themselves make us mystically, magically different. You have to stick with the learning and you have to keep like bringing yourself back to that moment in order to, uh, I guess, achieve the application. Um, so I think to some extent, this is what we're, you're talking about here. Absolutely. I mean, this is about being awake and aware. Um, you mm-hmm. have this, this experience. It sounds incredibly challenging. It sounds emotionally very, very scary. Right. Um, and you have a choice. You can now forget about it and let it go. And it's just, it was just a, a flash or it was, what did come up for you? What was, what is the root of that fear? What were you afraid of losing? What do you value? So true. You're nailing it. Yes. And, and, and then, okay, I realized I value these things. I don't want to lose these things. Mm. Okay. Well, how are you living your life then to honor those things? And that's so beautiful. And, and, and what my teacher talks about all the time is anything that comes into our awareness, whether it feels good or feels bad, it's working for us. Um, so then paying deep, deep attention to all those emotions, it's not, emotions are just emotions. They don't need a label. They're here to teach us. So how do we not ignore them? How do we wake up, open our eyes and say, oh, wow, okay, I forgot. I'm not treating my wife the way I want to treat her. I miss my kids. I don't want to die and not have said this. Um, and then how do we take those actions? And again, that's where having a coach or a therapist or someone that can just help you unpack it, just take it that one more step, um, remind you of, mm, it seems like you're not journaling or meditating or, or paying attention to the things that you said were so important to you. There seems to be a disconnect, no judgment, just seems like a disconnect. What's going on? Right, um, right. That is often just the job of the coach, right? We are just helping to observe things that you say, the results that you say you want to achieve. Uh, but but I think, and one of the big things that we all have to process is the very discomfort that we've, is like getting comfortable with, with being a little uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that that is part of the subject. You know, it's related to what we're discussing. We've discussed here today. Um, these are 
tools that could be accessed uh, for your toolbox and ways to um, be able to go a little bit deeper and and do some some growing in a lot of different directions. Chad, um, one thing I didn't, I'm just going to jump in. Yeah. And one thing I didn't talk about yet with mm. what this medicine can do is it can mm-hmm. remove, and it ties exactly what you're saying about, about feeling uncomfortable. Um, we're feel, we feel uncomfortable when we're judging ourselves. We feel uncomfortable when we feel others are judging us. Um, one of the things this medicine does in many cases, it removes shame, blame, and guilt. So when you take that out of an equation, it allows you then to look at your behavior and other behavior in a way that's different. Um, so that can be effect, hugely effective when you're looking at past traumas or past events in your life that are, are, you have deemed bad or challenging. It can be hugely powerful in, um, in couples work. So for instance, MDMA, right now, right now everybody's so focused on treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA. And that's beautiful and it's, it's powerful and it's incredible results. But we don't talk enough about MDMA as a couples tool, which it had been for years and years and years before it was made. Mm. And it is still done in the underground where the best practice is for couples to once or twice a year, when the marriage is great, have MDMA and go into a couple session where they can say and look at the other and say, you know what, when you do this, it makes me feel that. And the other person Instead of reacting as we all normally do, oh, but you don't understand, or that's nonsense, or I was trying to do, <laughs> you just hear them and you can say, oh my goodness, I did not realize that. I don't, of course, I don't want to hurt you. Of course, I love you. I love you deeply. And I see now how my behavior makes you feel and I don't want to do that. And because you see and because you know, change can happen. And it's a... Uh, you can now imagine applying that to anything that's happened in your life. Hmm. I, this happened to me, but I also see how I played a part in that. And I don't have to judge myself for being bad for playing a part, but I can see it and now I can move on. And again, super, super powerful medicine for that purpose too. And a super powerful way to conclude our talk. Matt Zeman, I can tell you've been doing the work and uh, and it's you've got some just rich, beautiful things to say. And it's an important message. And we're you know happy to be a part of you know spreading the word and, and having this dialogue. So thank you. Thanks for being on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking this topic on for uh, for your listeners. And and, I appreciate it very much. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life. To open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving to thriving to even flourishing. And I think what Matt Zeman is saying is that there are new possibilities and directions for exploring your consciousness. And like with any substance, there are risks and there are no silver bullets when it comes to healing. You still have to do the work day in and day out. But I I do believe it was William James at the turn of the 20th century who began exploring how different levels of consciousness and mystical experiences are a part of the varieties of religious experience. And sometimes, even if you're just getting a glimpse of a different reality, even if you can't remain there, it can open up ideas 
about how important and sacred the day-to-day realities of our existence are, and may there be continued healing and growth for you and your journey. And you know where to find us for healing and growth at bigselfschool.com, where we offer a variety of packages of one-to-one coaching, as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.